Here we go. Coming to you from the many worlds of the multiverse. It's the podcast that's never the same twice. And always two things at once. Black Rock City occurs in the National Conservation Area. And believe it or not, there are a lot of animals that use the playa when we're not there. This is Burning Man Live. Hello, 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 my friends, invisible and otherwise. Welcome back to another episode of this crazy thing we call Burning Man Live. Still can't get the Terry Gross voice. I'm Stuart Mangrum. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Cobra Commander, Logan Mirto. Hey, Logan. Hey, how you doing, Stuart? Excellent. It's been a great day today. Despite all of the chaos and uncertainty and collapse around us, I'm in a good mood, mostly jazzed about today's show. Fantastic. Yeah, I mean, you got to hold on to what's working, right? So here we are. All right. So we did a show, I think back in, I think it was like episode eight or nine about Fly Ranch. And we got a lot of comments, actually, on that. The thread of comments was, tell us more. We want to know more about that place. Burning Man Project bought Fly Ranch back in, what, 2016? And, you know, it's not that we've been secretive about it, but I guess a lot of people in the general community are not aware of what's there, what's going on, what our future is. So that's what we're going to get into today. Sure. And, and even the people that know what it is, like so few people were able to go there for such a long time that it's, uh, it's still a place that's got a bunch of mystery to it, even if it's been on your radar for a long time. So, Right. And there's a lot of people in the world who believe it is just a crazy looking geyser, right? It's like an acre around this psychedelic looking hot springs. Right. And in fact, it's a huge chunk of land. It's 3,800 acres, which is like mm-hmm. just under six square miles with a lot of different ecosystems in it. So that lack of knowledge was one of the reasons why we created our land fellowship. Not long after we bought the property, there was a lot of ideas swirling around, around you know, development and all that. And there were some of us who said, wait a minute, cool your jets. Let's figure out what's already there, right? Make sure we don't screw the place up. So we created a land fellowship. Inspired in my case by, I've always been drawn to accounts of places. Like, have you ever read Edward Abbey's Desert Solitaire? Yeah, ages ago, like when I was a teenager. He spent a whole year and documented all through the seasons out in natural bridges or canyons, Canyonland, somewhere out there in Utah. And books like Stan County Almanac and, and the Peregrine, right? So I wanted to get that notion of what the place is like, all of its various places and, and all the way across the year. So that land fellow is our guest today. Dr. Lisa Beers, also known as Skirpus. She has a PhD in wetland ecology. She's worked all over the world doing field work in wetlands. She's been around the Burning Man world for a number of years, has worked as an environmental compliance manager, our liaison with the Bureau of Land Management on all things environmental. And as I mentioned, Burning Man Project's first and only land fellow. She had a chance to do a deep study of the property from 2017 to 2018. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Stuart. Happy to be here. I'm so glad you could join us. First of all, I just got to say, Skirpus is probably one of the more unusual ply names that I've ever heard. How did you get it? I know it's a variety of grass, right, of sedge, but how did you acquire that? Well, it, it actually is probably one of the nerdiest playa names that I've come across. So Skirpus is actually a wetland plant species. 
And 2006, first time I was working out at Burning Man and we went to Frog Pond and I'm a botanist. So I just start identifying plants. I can't help myself. And so there's scurpus growing along the edge and I'm just saying it out loud. And a friend of mine said, oh, that's your name. Like, no, it's not. That's like the epitome of nerddom. <laughs> I don't want it, but you know, you don't get to choose your names. So I think there's actually now only one scurpus in the world that you find in South Africa, just with genomics and such. They just changed the name. So I'm the one lone rare scurpus in, in Nevada. Well, you wouldn't want to be like Bullrush. That would be a terrible no. client name. No. Yeah, scurpus is pretty good, though. You started coming out in 2006. Tell us a little bit about your history with Burning Man. What's your origin story? Who talked you into going? Oh, my good friend Dave X just kind of took me on a magic carpet ride. How did you meet him? Actually, on one of those Christmas tree burns that happened on Ocean Beach, one of my friends just took me there. I didn't really know anything about Burning Man at all. And then she said, here, this is my friend Dave. Do <laughs> <laughs> the handoff. Okay. Yeah. And I was like, all right, I've got enough time. So I'm just going to volunteer for six weeks, do the whole stint for DPW and worked with a sign team, sign production, making signs, installing them, tearing them down. And that had shifted then to working with fuel. And then I managed the fuel department for a number of years. I had tinkered with golf carts for one season. And then with my current role as environmental compliance manager, doing that for the past, this would have been my sixth year doing that. I'd forgotten that you'd come in as a DPW person first. That's always one of my favorite things is when we get people on DPW that have no idea what's coming for them when the event is coming. They're just working, doing their thing, contributing to whatever it is. And then the event hits everybody like a wave. It's always fun to watch those experiences play out. I always pay special attention to those folks to see how they're traversing all that and how that goes. It's, that's great stuff. Yeah, definitely. Being a redhead, too, it's not necessarily the environment that I'm uh, adapted to. But Right. Well, I'm tough. <laughs> and you wear big hats, right? Yes, very big hats. <laughs> I think the big hat is the most essential piece of survival gear, personally. I've got a giant Pancho Villa-style sombrero that I'd like to wear. It's been enough shade for three people if we stand closer together. Let's talk about Fly Ranch. People want to know more about this place, the studies and the research that you've done there. Why is that important? Why should Burning Man be paying attention to that and creating a fellowship for it? What's the end game with all of that research? Well, I think it's, it's really important first and foremost, to know what it is that's on your land, have a sense of the biodiversity that's there, if there's any endangered species or any threatened species or anything that could be you know, extremely impacted by any activities that could, could be occurring out there. So I think it's important just to have that baseline from the get-go. There's also been a growing desire to have sustainability in mind for absolutely everything that happens within the Burning Man project and anything that comes out of it. And so there's been a sustainability roadmap that's been discussed quite frequently this year over many different forums. You know, we, we don't want to leave a trace with any of the activities that we do, and especially so on a property that Burning Man owns. So say if we start to do events or some campouts that are happening at, at Fly Ranch, we want to make sure that any impact that we have 
is mitigated, that we do something that we either try to be carbon neutral or carbon negative, if even that's possible in the near term, but then also make sure that we're not impacting the land that we're going to be using for many years to come. It's important to be mindful of what it is that we have, how we can affect it, and what we can do to improve the landscape that we're working with out there at Fly Ranch. Because it is habitat for a whole lot of uh, life besides us, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's, it's a big water source. And so, of course, animals are going to be drawn to it and want to use it. I know that you've led a lot of nature walks out there. Good news. I, I guess we just opened back up for nature walks. Yeah, we have. So it's going now and there's smaller walks. There's only about 10 people max that can go along, but at least get a chance to walk around the property. One aspect that I like about the nature walks is that we bring in a lot of Burning Man principles with it, like immediacy. There's only a very small portion of the walk where you're allowed to take your camera out. We want people to be present and look around and not just be staring at their screen. I like that aspect, in addition to all the practices of Leave No Trace as well. It's nice to show people the property and it ends up so that they get a chance to look at the geyser. You know, that's what everybody really wants to see. But we want to highlight some of the other aspects of the property that make it so unique. Those walks are done in collaboration with Friends of Black Rock High Rock, right? The local conservation group? Yeah, correct. They're actually the main reason why it's even possible for us to have groups on the property. So it's a collaboration. All of the walks are donation-based. Now we've got an interesting assortment of people that have come from all over the world. <laughs> Thanks, Time Magazine, <laughs> for putting Flag Geyser on the cover one year. I freaked out when I saw that. Yeah, I was like, too. really? Because that's what we need is more people just jumping in and messing it up. Has there been damage to the geyser from human activity? Or is it more just the natural self-destructing nature of the formation? I think it's a combination of both. More of it just growing so large that now it's starting to fall apart. There's always evidence of people walking around it. You can see their footprints and the travertine at the base is pretty soft. But I've found ways of trying to erase it. But yeah, the geyser's grown so huge over the years that there's some portions of it that don't even have water on it anymore. And so with the temperature changes, especially during the winter, it's starting to fall apart and it's changing the flow of the water in other areas. And so a big portion of it, it's not as vibrant as it has been in past years. It's not getting the hot water. The geyser was bulldozed in the 50s, right? And then it's been growing since. The origin for the main geyser is 1964. I should actually put in a spoiler alert that it's not actually a geyser. It's a artesian spring because geysers usually have a periodicity to it. You know, you think of Old Faithful, right. you know, it just right. shoots off. But this is technically a spring, but, you know, whatever, we're just going to use it. Just say geyser. <laughs> okay. Tell us more about why it looks so crazy. Why, why all those insane colors from the surface of Mars. There have been a couple attempts for geothermal exploration on the property. The first one was in like, 1917, and then this one was in 1964. And they found that it wasn't enough to further explore, so they capped it. Either they did a botched cap job or the pressure was so much that it just started spewing. And so over time, there's a lot of travertine and different minerals in the water that just start to build this cone. And there are microbes that love heat. They're called thermophiles. 
those are the ones that you see living on the geysers. And they can range in color from like this vibrant green to yellow to like a red and then like kind of a rust color. The hotter the water is, the more red and orange it is. So you end up getting this beautiful rainbow depending on water temperature. Very cool. And there are actually three of them that are on the property. So there's the one from 1916 that we call the wizard. It's about 16 feet tall and it's just spewing a little bit out of the top. It's still functioning, but not so much compared to the main one, Fly Geyser. And then there was another one that was first seen by Will Rogers, one of the cultural founders of Burning Man in the early 90s. That's my favorite. It looks natural. It kind of looks like a volcano or like a witch's brew. There's this water percolating up and cone-shaped, and it's absolutely gorgeous. What else lives in water that hot besides the thermophiles? Is there anything swimming around in those pools? Not really. Fly Geyser is one of the main hot springs that people like to soak in on the property, and it has a good little ramp and such that makes it easier to access the water. And I can always tell if it's warm enough for me to go into it is if there's no fish swimming in it. I know it's warm enough. I can't imagine it being not warm enough. I've only been there when it was too hot if you went in the wrong place. But like many, many springs, you have to be careful about that, right? Like Double Hot, for instance, <laughs> earned its name the hard way, right? Yeah, definitely. When I first started my fellowship, I thought it would be interesting to just try to figure out where all the hot springs were, all the water sources. And then I found like over a hundred of them ranging in size from like a, like a dinner plate to as big as almost an acre. And uh-huh. I started calling them hot holes for lack of a better term. Uh-huh. And I just walked around with my GPS unit and my thermometer and I could just be standing right next to a hot hole that was like 185 degrees. But I, I was perfectly fine standing right next to it. And then wow, I that's start- more, more than a hundred of them on the Fly Geyser property, like on, on our mm-hmm. property. Wow, I had no idea. Yeah, there's really no rhyme or reason to why some of them are hot and some of them are cold. I mapped out all of the temperatures and color-coded them just to see if there was any sort of spatial pattern in it. And I couldn't find any sort of pattern, which I like that aspect of it. Wow. Chaos. Let's zoom out a little bit because, uh, as we were saying before, that part of the property is just a tiny fraction of it. And I know there's a bunch of different eco-zones within this gigantic, close to six square miles. For those of us who can't go on a nature walk. Maybe you could just sort of walk us around the different parts of the property and tell us what we might see. Sure. I figured out that there are about five different habitats or types of ecosystems on the property. The most common one or the prettiest one to me is a sagebrush step. So that's where you find the giant sagebrush. There's a lot of rabbit brush that's starting to turn all yellow now. It's amazing what a difference a tiny bit of elevation makes on the property, that the 4,000-foot contour line pretty much bisects it, and there's really maybe about 20 feet difference like above and below that. So you find this sagebrush step kind of in the highest area, and you go down a little bit more, and that's where the greasewood is. That's a plant that has a lot of spines on it, produces this big thicket, and that tends to grow where the playa-type soil, it's a little bit saltier, it's a little harsher. And the roots can go down like 20, 30 feet. It's pretty amazing how resourceful and how well adapted these plants are to the environment. And then you start going a little bit further down in elevation where it is getting much saltier. And that's where you find saltgrass, the stickless spicata. If you actually break off a leaf and look at it, hold it up in the sun, there's salt crystals on it. 
because that's one of the ways that this badass plant is able to survive in a saline environment that it just uptakes the salt and then just excretes it. My favorite area on the property is the wetlands. There's a ton of scurpus. I'll just plug the scurpus, even though it's outdated. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) that's like a pretty large percentage of the property is wetland, right? Yeah, and it's actually some of the tallest of the species, or what one of the species, common three square, that when I used to do work in San Francisco Bay, it's pretty common there, but it wouldn't be more than like a couple feet tall. But then there was some that was like six or seven feet tall growing out at Fly Ranch. So maybe it has something to do with the temperature of the water. In these wetland areas, there's a lot of showy milkweed. Milkweed is the main source of food for monarch butterflies. And I was just walking along one day and there's a couple monarch butterflies flew by. I'm like, of course there's monarchs here. And I didn't know that there's just a migration over the Sierra Nevada mountain range between the Pacific coast and Nevada. So there's a small population of monarchs. They're at Fly Ranch for parts of the year. Incredible. That was unique. Yeah, I guess for a lot of migratory animals, that's a stop on the long haul, right? You zoom in from space and there's not a lot of water for hundreds and hundreds of miles there, right? Right. I'm pretty sure that the geothermal activity in the ponds that have been created through that have been around for a long time, just because of you know, I found a lot of projectile points and such, specifically in the area where all the water is, which suggests that it was a main hunting ground. Throughout the 1900s, two dams were put in that have basically made some reservoirs on the properties collecting all the water there. And so it is a huge source of water for these migrating birds. I've never been a birder. I actually used to make fun of birders, but now I've been, (laughs) my ways have been changed. I've joined the dark side. But in order for me to try to figure out what these bird species are, like I'm used to when you go up to a plant, like I touch it, you smell it, and sometimes you taste it, but you can't quite do that with birds, right? You just, they all probably feel the same. So I had installed what I called critter cams motion-activated cameras along some of the reservoirs and other places to just try to figure out what these birds were and got some really amazing photos that they've taken, you know, I've I've curated the photos. So I didn't actually take them, the birds did. But (laughs) seeing like tundra swans and snow geese, there's this one bird that's maybe about a foot tall called greater yellow legs. It just stops off for a couple of days as it's flying between South America and Canada where it breeds. Having the cameras on the property, you're able to see who's there. Because usually if I walk around, I just scare them. I'm not really that graceful. So I'm not, I'm not the best at identifying birds on the fly. So on the fly, so to speak. Yeah. Oh. On the fly. <laughs> That's like a double pun, Stuart. That's like, yeah. Sorry. Birds <laughs> and guys. Couldn't let it go. It's, it's too much. Winters can be pretty harsh out there, in my experience. Oh, Definitely. On the western side of the property is the Granite Mountain Range, and that's almost 10,000 feet. So you have this whole microclimate in the Wallapai Valley where Fly Ranch is that's a little bit different than, say, like Gurlock or the Black Rock Desert. The winds seem to be a hell of a lot stronger. I was staying in a, a double wide, and sometimes I thought that the house was going to blow over. The wind was just so strong. Yeah, the wind out there gets crazy, especially as winter's kicking in, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there have been times during fly restoration where the wind is just the thing that's driving everybody nuts. It's not the monotony. It's not the walking in the endless dust. It's it's the ever-present wind from morning to dusk that is just like constant pressure that you're working against. Relentless. Yeah, Relentless. Yeah. 
Now, I can understand migratory birds coming in when the weather's nice and then leaving, but how do critters adapt to just that super wide swing of temperatures and environmental conditions? What else lives out there and how do they make it through the winter? About half of the bird species that I identified are year-round residents. So they just kind of hunker down. But yeah, there's the little sparrows and meadowlarks are there all year long. There's a lot of predatory birds. There's a a breeding pair of golden eagles that live in the mountain range right next door. And so they hunt on the property. You don't really get a sense of how huge they are until they're actually on the ground. Like, wow, that is a big bird. And red-tailed hawks and swainston hawks and... Kestrels. Oh, yeah, that's a kestrel. But there's also a lot of mammals that are on the property, too. I'm a botanist by training, so doing birds or mammals was a little bit challenging. But um, there are about 20 horses that are on the property. They're all wild horses. Maybe a couple of them were part of a ranch at some point. One of them has horseshoes still on them. So it leaves, you can tell with their hoof prints that are there. He ran off and joined the horse circus? Yeah. (laughs) The two herds, there's two dominant males. And overall, had pretty good interactions with them or no interactions. It was a little scary on two occasions where you get too close to their water source when they're there. And they come running up and stomping and making all sorts of sounds. And you just kind of stand there and look big and (laughs) hope that they go away. Wow. That's exciting. What have you spotted in your critter cams? What comes through at night? Oh, my favorite was a mountain lion. Oh, yeah? The animals know that the cameras are there, which I think is pretty fascinating. Some of them you just see, like, they go right up to the camera. There was a photo of a bobcat where all you really see is this white blob and then the whiskers coming off to the side. It was just checking it out. And then with the mountain lion, you just see the silhouette as the sun's setting around to the sky with the mountain range and just the silhouette of the the cat. It was pretty phenomenal. Uh, what do all those critters eat? Jackrabbits, cottontails. Jackalopes? I wish. Okay. I think they only live you know, more you know, like in Wyoming, Montana. Okay. That's where you find the jackalopes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, probably a lot of mice and voles and all that stuff down in the high grasses. And Yeah, I didn't have the capacity to try to do some live catching. I put some traps out just to see who was there. Yeah, but I have seen the kangaroo, rats, and the cute little antelope ground squirrels. I've gotten some cute photos of them from the critter cams. Did you say antelope squirrel? Is that a squirrelope? A squirrelope. <laughs> oh, Stuart. <laughs> oh, boy. Sorry. I couldn't help couldn't myself. Oh, that's um, okay. You can tell what my spirit animal is. Uh, <laughs> it's definitely the jackalope. I've seen a lot of ravens out there. They seem like they're almost top of the food chain and that they'll eat anything and pick up what's left, right? Mm -hmm. I think it was in October, and they all seem to congregate in the Russian olive trees that are next to Fly Reservoir. All at once, they just started cawing and just making this super ominous sound. And it felt like I wasn't quite sure what was going on, if it was me in the area or what it was, but it was like 40 or 50 of them going all at the same time. It's like enough to make your the hair stand up on your neck. Like, what's going on? What do you know that I don't know? Yeah, they make that weird. It's more like a croak than a caw, right? Yeah. Yeah, it sounds pretty spooky. That's weird to see a bunch of them together. What do you call that? It's not a parliament of ravens. It's not a murder of ravens. 
I thought it was murder. Maybe it's murder of crows. It is murder, murder of crows. crows. Yeah. Oh, okay. One of our faithful researchers has reminded us that the group noun for ravens is, I love this, an unkindness yeah. of ravens. <laughs> Apparently it's an unkindness or a conspiracy, which may have led into that feeling of foreboding that you were experiencing at their calling and grouping. <laughs> No one has ever assumed they mean well, I guess, in terms of naturalist naming convention. (laughs) So there's actually a lot of springs across the property, which I thought was kind of neat, kind of unexpected walking along. So it's a lot of fresh water or cold springs, probably drilled as a result of all of the branching activity that's happened over the past 150 years or so. At one point, there were so many cattle on the property that they basically, they starved to death. There was a lot of a lot of death because it got overgrazed. Yeah. And as a result of all of the grazing, and for a little while, there was an alfalfa farming operation close to where in 97, when the Burning Man event was held on the property. Right. Where the old ranch house was, right? Yep. And Coyote definitely has some interesting stories to tell from that period. <laughs> He's actually told one on this program, yes, about having to clear the dead uh, cattle out of the old ranch house. Yeah. Still gives me nightmares. For my visits out there, I think the eerie sound that I hear just about every time I go is when the coyotes get at it. Yeah, there was one evening when I was walking around, a beautiful evening, the sunset was gorgeous. And then I just heard off to the left of me, a group just starting to howl. And then in front of me, there was another pack. There was four distinct units of them all around me making calls. I was like, okay, maybe it's time for me to make my way back to the to the house. Right? Triangulating on you or quadrangulating on you. Yeah, that's and deep, was- primal, chilling stuff. I experienced that at the work ranch one of my first times out there. I'm just, I felt all of my deep ancestral blood just kind of raise all the hackles because, yeah, that's not what you want to hear when you're outdoors, for sure. Oh, Definitely. <laughs> was in the, the spring going into the summer and was walking near one of the reservoirs just trying to see what birds were coming in and all of a sudden I'd see something start to move maybe about 20 feet in front of me and it was a coyote that was all crouched down in the sedges and I scared it and it just hopped up and I happened to just have my camera out at the right time where it's kind of looking at me and jumping up in the air and trying to run away they're just super unique. And I, I mean, I feel bad sometimes when I sneak up on animals, not even knowing that I'm doing so. But I've gotten scared too. And there was a female a deer, a doe of a mule deer that had her foal. And I was super close to it and didn't even know. And the sound that she made, I didn't even know that deers could make that sound. But it scared the living daylights out of me. It was kind of like a huffing sound, but a little bit like a growl too. Yeah, it was just, it was unique. She was definitely in mama deer mode. And that's all right. Yeah. But the animals that don't seem to mind you being there, the pronghorn antelope. There was one in particular that just, it was, I think, more curious about me than I was about it. And it would just kind of follow me around and look at me. The pronghorn antelope. They look like they're from another planet. They kind of have this alien look to them in their face. And it was just, just so unique just to be with it. You know, I spend most of my time out there walking. I hardly ever use the the ATV that was offered to me to cruise the property because I just found it was easier and better to see things just by walking. And the animals notice that, you know, if you're just a solo person or a solo entity, I don't know quite how they perceive me, but 
was hardly ever, ever with aggression, which is more curiosity or ambivalence. Hmm. The property also down towards that south end, close to the old ranch house, it also butts up against Hualapai Flat, which is like kind of a miniature version of the playa, the Black Rock Desert. Does anything live there or is it just a dead zone? Well, there are the magical fairy shrimp. That fairy live. shrimp? Tell me more. Yeah. Oh, fairy shrimp are amazing. Their eggs, or technically, I think they're called cysts, can remain dormant or dry for like up to 17 years, just waiting for water to come. And they can complete their life cycle in about two weeks. And they usually spend about half of that time mating. As long as there's water, they keep on growing. So that there's a couple species of fairy shrimp that you find in mm. this part of Nevada. One of them's small, but another one that I saw was three inches long. And that was when there was a lake in the Black Rock Desert for like months and months and months and months. Right. That was amazing. I didn't. I kind of thought that fairy shrimp weren't real because I had never actually seen them. Kind of like, I don't think manatees are real. They're like mythical, like unicorns, because I've never seen them. Or platypuses. Platypuses. They're just impossible. Yeah, just made up animals. Yeah, that's real. But then when I actually saw it and had it in my hand, it's like, oh my gosh, you are real. It's magical. Three inches. That's, is that a fairy prawn? I mean, it'd take a lot of them to make a meal, but. Yeah, and I I don't know what what flavor would go best with it. Maybe a little bit of hot sauce. I'm sorry. They're protected anyway, aren't they? (laughs) <laughs> are they not a protected species or they're not protected they're quite prevalent but they are a food source for the a lot of shorebirds or other mm. birds so got it i was wondering what all those migratory birds eat what's life like down at the at the soil level oh my goodness there's so much activity with the insects i wish that i was more um, adept at identifying them but One intriguing aspect when I was there in 2017, when it was a super wet year, is that there was a huge number of cicadas that came out. And at first I just heard like one or two, and I thought that was pretty neat. But then at one point there were so many of them that I wish that I had earplugs. They were just so, so vocal. And I didn't even know that we got cicadas here in Nevada. I thought of that more as like an East Coast thing, or even in Arizona, there's some cicadas. There's a huge diversity of dragonflies and damselflies that you find around the wetland areas. And there's no lack of mosquitoes on the property either. So there's plenty <laughs> plenty of food for them, for sure. There are uh, a lot of scorpions, and I've been stung by them twice, unfortunately, through no fault of my own, just happening to be, they were either in my trailer or in the house that I was staying in. So yeah, scorpions are real. <laughs> are they those little tiny ones that crawl under your shoe or your boot while you're mm-hmm. sleeping? Yeah, they were about like two inches long. It, it's it smarted. Didn't feel the best, but it was tolerable. And when I got the second sting, it activated the area where I got the first sting. So I feel like I have some sort of, you know, with the, the scorpion venom in my system. <laughs> Maybe it's talking, like, it's talking yeah, to itself. for the first five months of my fellowship i couldn't even walk around on the playa area because there's some remnant art pieces from the 97 burning man event that were still there because they weren't given enough time to clean up afterwards and so i wanted to go out and see pepe's lingam or what remained of it or this weird blob that i wasn't quite sure what it was but i didn't really want to leave an impact for walking on the wet playa so i had to wait till the end of july before I could actually walk on the playa and not leave tracks. 
and go exploring on that part of the property. Give it a few more years and that'll be an archaeological zone. We'll have to like <laughs> stake it out and dig it up. What other interesting artifacts of the past have you run across out there in your rambles? Because I know this property is, it's been used by humans for a very long time. You mentioned stone points, but also in modern times for the last century or so, it's been a working ranch and gosh knows what else. Apparently even that once was a flying school or like a, a fly-in space for early aircraft. There was a small runway on the property and there is a, I don't know if the airplane crashed or if it just something didn't work and they just left it there, but there is a small airplane there. It's been really disassembled. You can hardly even tell that it's the airplane save for one wing, but yeah, that's, it's pretty neat just to be wandering around. I, I had a, a hint from Bubble Geek. He's like, yeah, there's an airplane in this general area. You should go check it out. And like, lo and behold, see the shiny thing go walking up to it. What other surprising things have you found in your, in your rambles across the property? It's a lot of very strange attempts at irrigation. Yeah. You know, mm. they just pipes that don't, you don't really know how they're connecting to this or that, but you know, people are trying desperately to grow something or have water for their cattle. I came across a coyote that had recently passed away and it actually it looked like it was just sleeping. That was one interesting thing that I tracked over the course of the winter. Nothing bothered it. Usually if there's a dead animal, it gets torn apart and there's really sure. nothing left of it. But this, it looked like it was sleeping. And then come May of the following year, the wind had blown all of the hair off. And so it was still just a skeleton on the ground. I thought that was really unique. You just... Hmm. Never thought I'd be tracking a dead animal. Is it tricky when you spend so much time out there in isolation and with nature to sort of, like, I know that in my longer stints in the Black Rock Desert, getting back to civilization can be very jarring and discombobulating and kind of readapting to society and culture and the pace and chaos. Did you find that challenging with your long stint out there to have to recalibrate on the regular as you were going back and forth? Yeah, I, I found it quite challenging. I'm a bit of a lone wolf by nature. Mm -hmm. So I like being alone. I like my privacy and exploring and such. And so it just, even when there was more activity on Fly Ranch, it's kind of like, well, why are you guys here? You know, right. get off my property. <laughs> yep. You got so used to being alone, not really sure. knowing how to interact with people anymore. You know, I was more comfortable with the birds, it seemed like. Yeah, I um, can imagine. Yeah. So it took a little bit of time after the fellowship, just to feel grounded that you know, two days after my fellowship ended, my husband just put me on an airplane and we went to Oaxaca, Mexico. So that was kind of a nice... Smart man. Yes. <laughs> kind of break <laughs> things up a little bit in my reintroduction to the world. <laughs> sure. No, that's good. That's a smart play. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of Oaxaca, could we grow, could we grow agave oh, out and fly? I would, I would love it if we could. That would be absolutely amazing. I, I think it's not quite the right conditions to grow agave. It probably does get a little cold in the winter for them. And yeah. we don't have, I understand that different agave species have different pollinators, like some are pollinated by bats. Yep. A lot of them, like a lot of the ones that are used for making mezcal are at higher elevations and they're kind of more sparsely distributed across the landscape. And some of them, they need the animals, the insects and the bats to transport the seeds other places. Oh, wow. you know, it actually to function. Yeah, I love learning about agave, especially with what it produces too, <laughs> with what humans make out of it. <laughs> I, I know you're a lifelong learner and you've devoted some study to our friend Mescal. 
as mm-hmm. I have too. Yeah, got to uh, increase our miscabulary over time. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. It's like tequila is a form of mezcal technically, but once you get deep into the mezcal country, it's more like learning about wine. There's so mm-hmm. many different styles and even like batches can be radically different from each other, right? Oh, yeah. I've been blessed to have met people over time who have gone deep into the different states in Mexico where the mezcal production occurs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like the small batch, it's made for the community. It's not necessarily made for mass consumption. I like that aspect of it. Sometimes it takes a plant 25 years to get to a point where it's at the right stage to turn into mezcal. There's a rarity about it with the you know, general world life cycle and community life cycle and such that I like. I like the, the harshness of it, the scarcity of it. And it freaks me out when you know, go into a chain store, you know, one that's kind of known for having discounted wines and alcohols and such. And I see a $20 bottle of mezcal. Oh my God, this is not the way it should be going. You should be, <laughs> you should be spending a lot more for this because it's, it's worthy of it if done properly. So it makes me wonder the source of it. Interesting. My mezcal experience is fairly limited to the States, but I there was a mezcal bar in Austin that I would frequent and would end up being fascinated by all the things that they put together to chase with it, like grasshopper salt and just like unusual word combinations and things <laughs> yes. for me to put in my body along with mezcal. And I was like, oh, okay. But I've always tried to be intrepid with my culinary stuff. So I would always do it and then just be like, wow, I was, I'm not even going to look up what that was. That just, I'm just going to experience it and move on. Let's um, just call them chapulines and not say grasshopper. Tell us what you do on Playa. For the past five years, I've been managing environmental compliance for the Burning Man event. Basically, I'm the liaison between the Burning Man project and the BLM when it comes to all things environmental. So we're making sure that we're meeting our stipulation requirement for our special recreation permit. So I mainly help to manage a huge team of volunteers that are comprised of the Earth Guardians and the Black Rock Rangers, and basically just cruising around in golf carts looking for things that potentially could be a violation of our permit when it comes to environmental compliance. So this is like fuel cans that are on the ground or leaking trailers with gray water or black water, which is human waste. And then also looking for human waste. We have a role called the Scooby-Poo that cruises around (laughs) and goes and picks up human waste. Tell me there's uh, there's not a lot of that. We have had anywhere between 20 and 40 little piles to pick up. Out of a population of 80,000, though, over the course of a week. That's still terrible. So you guys are kind of a, a hazardous materials crew. I imagine you have to follow hazmat protocols for all that stuff. Yeah, more or less. We've got our gloves and have our bags that we put it in, a special dumpster that we put it in. But yeah, it was interesting last year. So uh, most of the time, the calls that we get are from the Bureau of Land Management or BLM law enforcement saying that there's human waste somewhere. And they've uh, oftentimes done a pretty awful job of describing where it is. 
And so you are driving around for something as super tiny. So I had to talk to all of the law enforcement last year about the proper way to call in human waste. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing quite like seeing like a hundred law enforcement staring at you for a very intriguing topic. (laughs) Other than those, those few bad actors, I, I know from experience that a lot of this is just accidental as people who don't know how to manage their trailers or their RVs and, that's typically what happens, right? Their gray water cap comes off or their, God forbid, their black water cap comes open. There's also the issue of motor oil too, isn't there? Yes, there's been a couple attempts of trying to document the percentage of vehicles that are leaking oil onto the playa. And right at this stage now, I can basically see an oil drip with my eyes closed. It is pretty prevalent and it's unfortunate that it's prevalent, but yeah, we've got our systems in place to document where things are and pick it up and leave no trace. What can we do to educate participants more on how to prevent that stuff from happening in the first place? Well, the biggest thing is to just to check your gear before you come out, to test your systems before you even get out there, and to just be self-sufficient a little bit and not be reliant. So th- this is an all-volunteer crew. Do you ha- People put their hands up voluntarily to go clean up human waste? Is there any morale issues around that? (laughs) Well, we do have a very small staff that does receive a stipend for working. And I guess you'd call that hazard pay um, for picking up the human waste. But it's over 100 volunteers with the Earth Guardians and the Black Rock Rangers. And we have a relatively high return rate of people across years that they just... I mean, who doesn't want to cruise around town talking to people in a golf cart? It's kind of a luxury to, to be able to have wheels. And you get to meet actually a lot of people, even though you get tired of talking about your fuel cans being on the playa. <laughs> that ends up being about over 700 incidences that we log a year. About 70% of everything that we talk about is fuel on playa. Hopefully, people will get it. <laughs> But there's a lot of new people that come out and they just want to educate because the Black Rock Desert is a pretty magical place and fairy shrimp are real. They do live on the playa when it's wet. And so we want to make sure that not only them, but other animals that are on the playa are poisoned. It is important work and it's pretty vital for our permitting process too, right? Correct. Yep. Yep. Have we done any development on the property? out there or is it pretty much still intact from how it was when we bought them as far as i know we haven't done any extended development plans but is there anything up there at all or is it pretty much what it was when we bought it there haven't been any changes really to the property since we bought it and i like the fact that it's been a a slow process since burning man has purchased the property i'm excited about the land art generator initiative work Mm -hmm. the project that competition we're using those the submissions or the ideas that are coming in and actually building some prototypes related to either power, water, shelter, food, or regeneration. And so using these different themes that are ideas that people come up with to actually build some prototypes and see if there's something that we can build on the property that matches the landscape. You know, it's not intrusive. Mm-hmm. It will withstand the environment. Because it can be as much as like a 40 or to 50 degree difference between the hot and cold temperature in a given day wow. and over a hundred degree difference seasonally in right. addition to all the wind and just the dryness of it. 
It's a harsh environment. There's a reason why things haven't really been built to Nevada on a large scale because it is so harsh. Based off of some of these submissions and ideas and prototyping some things, using that as a test of moving forward with sustainable, regenerative operations on the property. Yeah, I found that really inspiring, actually. It's rare in capitalist culture as we live to see someone not, you know, immediately take something into some sort of massive developmental shift and to have Burning Man come into this property and and come into the space and really just take a long pause to assess and a long pause to kind of evaluate what best potential use of it is and how we can preserve what's there and still help move it forward in ways that are not destructive, not harmful, but that are harmonious with the environment. That to me is really exciting. It's good to hear that we're still on that slow path because I think that's a rare thing and it's nice to see that in the world. Yeah, definitely. And I'm not only grateful for my ability to have the fellowship or that even there was a land fellowship offered through the Birdie Man Project, just to be able to take a moment and see what's on the land and Never in a million years did I think that I could use my PhD in ecology for Burning Man. Right. You know, I could actually take my knowledge and apply it towards future ideas and operations. Yeah, that's really exciting. And I think that's one more thing stretching what Burning Man means. That Burning Man's not just Black Rock City. Burning Man is all of these things. And all of these initiatives have different aspects to them that this wide variety of expertise can play into, which is really exciting mm-hmm. for a lot of folks. That's great. Let's go back to conservation and reclamation. I know we picked up a ton of garbage and relics of the past out there. What else is, should be done or, or shouldn't be done? I'm, I'm curious about some of the invasive species out there, like the Russian olives and all that stuff. How do you, is there such a thing as an invasive species? Is it really a problem? <laughs> I've actually had some pretty interesting conversations with some people that were on campouts at Fly Ranch about what does it really mean to be invasive or non-native and are we just trying to put terms on things like natural processes that we're just expediting but there's some species that are non-native on the property that are just kind of there like the russian olive isn't really massively expanding the salt cedar's there but it's not massively expanding but there are others like cheatgrass and russian knapweed that are just absolutely everywhere and once they get into the community it's hard to extirpate them especially with the Russian knapweed. And it releases some chemicals into the ground, which prohibits growth of other plant species around there. So just these monospecific stands that just come in and take over entire landscapes. And a lot of the invasives have come in because of ranching. Cattle and horses are one of the main spreaders of seeds, any type of seed through these environments. And sure. so it's, it's, there's hardly any part of the property that's been untouched by these uh, non-native plants. Also with the cheatgrass, it amplifies fires that happen. So instead of fires being localized, it just it's, it creates this fuel source that helps the fire spread from brush to brush and that actually promotes the growth of the cheatgrass after it's burned. So it's kind of like this loop where it's more fires, more cheatgrass there was a fire on the property in 2010, and it took out a huge swath of sagebrush. And the sagebrush hasn't come back yet, but the cheatgrass sure has. Crazy. Yeah, it's it's interesting to think about how 
of course, we contribute to invasive species doing their thing, right? What you were just mentioning about, like, you know, are we just observing a phenomenon that is totally natural when things like that just come in and dominate a landscape? That's a great question. And it's something that I'm sure that you have a great window on when you're spending an extended amount of time in a space like that, where you can just grok the landscape and see how it is faring against itself, if you will. Yeah. We had some conversations with some local ranchers about what it would be like to bring in goats to forage in certain areas that one, I'm, I'm spacing on her name, but she said that like with the Russian knapweed, it's like 20% nitrogen, which is pretty high. It's greater than what you would find in alfalfa. So that when she has her goats foraging on Russian knapweed, you look at the meat and it's like marbled. Like there's actually, it didn't actually look like goat meat when she was showing it to people. So there are ways that we could try to decrease the spread or mitigate it a little bit through through that. I think that would be kind of neat to have goats on the property. I mean, we already have cattle on the property. So as long as we're having some sort of artificial grazing going on, why not sure. have it be a little bit more beneficial too? Okay, so we can't make a mescaleria, but we could make a goat cheese factory. That's what you're saying. That's what I'm hearing. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> we'll just have to import the mezcal to have with our goat cheese. Okay, deal. So I set up two kind of primitive weather stations, basically just measuring temperature, humidity, and light just to get a sense for how the amount of daylight changes over time. And then I had these little hobo loggers, the little temperature loggers, and I put them in a, a handful of the hot springs just to get a sense for how the water temperature changes over time and then how that relates to air temperature. And it was just neat to plot it out. It was just neat to have all of this data and to look at the temperature changes over time and just see that the main soaking pond, it can get up to like 115, 16 degrees. And I said, that's hot. That's not what you want to go soaking in. <laughs> I would have liked to have been able to look at water flows. Like there's a creek that runs through the property at Rock Creek. That is the main water source for the Wallapai Playa when it does become a lake. So I just wanted to see like when it was flowing because I wasn't always there to look at it and how fast just to get a sense for the magnitude of water that comes in. And where does all this data live? Or, and is there any plan to make any of it more widely available to the public? As part of the Laggy 2020 project, my species list, that's all available that people can look at and the temperature data and the light data are available, but we haven't published any of it technically. I don't quite know what sort of story I'd be able to tell just with that general observational data. It's a good ground point, a baseline assessment that can be used to build off of for future projects. I would love to see a small but robust science community at Fly Ranch studying the animals or the geothermal patterns and such to have more scientists coming in because it's rare to have people come on private property. A lot of scientists have hurdles with that because usually the most interesting things are behind fences. And so to be able to have access, like especially I know that there's a group that studies milkweed and just trying to get a sense for how big the stands are throughout Nevada and to be able to share the property with them so that they could look at that and get an assessment, update their, their models and such would be amazing to me. Do you see any possibility for citizen science for like people who go out and do nature walks to take pictures, log anything? or 
definitely. I know there's a couple big bird observation days that happen globally. I forget if that's the Audubon Society that hosts those, but I think it would be neat to have people that are more skilled than me at identifying birds to just do like a bio blitz of sorts. That sounds fun. I'm excited now that the property is open again to the public for the nature walks to be able to share some more information and get people not only looking at our property, but the surrounding all of the national conservation areas and such around. And I think it's important in this time to focus on our open lands, our open spaces and protecting it, even if we're just bringing people out because they really just want to see the geyser, hoping that they're learning some more things about the property. And that's the really nice thing about collaborating with the Friends of Black Rock High Rock is that they have this knowledge of the surrounding landscape. They're stewards of the land. And it probably have a little bit more activity on it than the BLM does, who is technically a stewards of the land. So it's, it's neat to be bringing people out and sharing what it is that's out here in rural Nevada and how important it is that we keep it open, reduce development and such, protect water rights, all of that good stuff. But it's a nice little window into our, our landscape coming to Fly Ranch. It's pretty magical. And amazing to be able to get to know this property and to be able to share the knowledge that I had garnered with other people in the staff and then also the community at large. Outstanding. Lisa Beers, thank you so much for joining us, Skirpus. Yeah, thanks, thanks for, for painting that me. picture of Fly for us. That is a fantastic spot. And I'm really grateful that you were able to come on and talk to us about the time that you spent out there. Thank you. All right, that is about our show today. Thanks for listening. Burning Man Live is a production of the Philosophical Center of Burning Man Project. Our web address is live.burningman.org. Our email is live at, and you can follow us on all the socials as Burning Man Live. And in case you didn't happen to write it down, you can make a quite possibly tax-deductible donation to Burning Man Project at donate.burningman.org. Thanks for helping us keep the lights on. Big appreciations to our technical producer and story editor, Michael Vaub, our producers, Andy Grace and Logan Mirto, our mysterious promotions manager, Daryl Van Ray, and our super friends, Tanner Boger, Devin from the Internet, and Jay Knizzle. That's it for now, friends. Thanks, Larry. Thanks.